This podcast is marketing material for a South Africa investment professional only. Welcome to the Schroeder's Global Market Perspective, the monthly podcast designed to help investors in South Africa navigate global markets. This is Gavin Ralston. I'm talking today in London with Azad Zangana, Schroeder's senior economist. If you were listening to our podcast last month, you heard my colleague Doug Abbott talk to Remy Olapitan about how our multi-asset portfolios are positioned. Today, we're going to discuss how the economic fundamentals that support these positions are evolving. 2020 so far has been a bit of a paradox when it comes to market behaviour. The economic data that's been reported so far, uh, at least outside the US, has generally been very weak. We've had recent data that confirms that both in Japan and in Europe. Added to that, there was a brief flare-up of Middle East tensions at the start of the year. And then, of course, from mid-January, the world economy has been hit by the epidemic of coronavirus, uh, where the scale of the impact is both large and unknown. As you'd expect at a time of growth shocks like this, safe havens have attracted flows of capital. So if we look at 10-year U.S. bond yields, uh, they have fallen from about 1.9% at the start of the year to 1.56 at the time we're speaking. Gold is also up from $1,500 an ounce to about $1,600. But at the same time, equities have maintained the momentum from 2019. So the S&P 500 is up 5%. European markets are up 4%, although the UK is something of an exception to this. And growth stocks have continued to make the running as they did last year. So just picking a few of the big names, um, Alphabet is up 12%, Amazon up 15%, Apple up 8%. The area that has been weaker in equity terms is Asia. Uh, although even here, Singapore, which is very exposed to uh, world trade and supply chains, is barely down for the year. So, so as I... Let's just address this question of what it is that's causing risk assets, equity markets to perform so well. Is it Are we back to the, the old uh, liquidity issue again? So what's interesting, Gavin, is that not all risk assets have performed well through the period. You're, you're right to mention that uh, equities very quickly rebounded uh, from the sell-off that we saw at uh, the start of the, uh, uh, the outbreak. Uh, but what's interesting is we've not really seen much of a recovery in commodity prices yet. And I suspect that's having quite a negative impact on the emerging market equity markets that obviously have a larger concentration uh, of these uh, types of companies. Um, and I think what we're seeing is uh, investors reasonably confident that um, the outbreak will be temporary, that the disruption to economic growth and activity uh, will eventually end and we will see a resumption in activity. Um, and that's why we do get, uh, we do have some rally, obviously, in, in, in these markets. But as well as that, there is uh, clearly um, views that central banks will be there to step in with more liquidity, with cuts in interest rates. And uh, governments also could potentially put in fiscal stimulus, as we've seen announced in, in areas like China. These all help equity markets uh, go further uh, based on even potentially lower 
forecasts for earnings on the back of the uh, the disruption that we're seeing. But one of the issues that's been talked about a lot is, is just how much room central banks have given the low level of interest rates, negative rates in many parts of the world. Do you really think they've got scope to provide the necessary stimulus in the event that the situation deteriorates further? Well, the majority of them don't, clearly. Um, but the, the big one that everybody watches is the US Federal Reserve. and They clearly do have more room uh, to manoeuvre, should they wish to. And of course, if when they do or if they do cut interest rates, uh, that allows uh, liquidity to flow through the dollar across the world. And of course, that's one of the most important currencies out there. So that's why it's, it's so important to watch. Uh, Europe doesn't have a great deal of scope, but then again, um, European interest rates are, are far less influential than US interest rates for the rest of the world. Um, and then lastly, emerging markets, there's still plenty of scope to ease policy uh, in emerging markets. Um, and, and I think we will see more of that uh, come through this year and next. And, and turning back to the, the Fed, I mean, the data in the US so far this year has been respectable. It's been stronger than in, certainly in Europe. Um, will the Fed look mainly to domestic data in making a decision whether to ease or not? Or will, will it be more conscious of weakness in China, weakness in Europe and so on? For the moment, um, the communication out of the Fed is uh, reasonably optimistic that the economy will continue to do well and that, that there's probably uh, they're probably done now in terms of cuts. Uh, but uh, that's based on the current data and they do warn that if the disruption to activity from the outbreak ends up being worse than expected, uh, then they may obviously have to change that uh, position. And the difficulty is we've we've had no new data yet. Um, we should hopefully uh, by the end of this week, um, so from the 21st of February onwards, start to get flash purchasing managers indices data, which is a very early indication of activity uh, through the month of February. Uh, that will be the first reading we've had of how the virus uh, will have impacted orders and especially manufacturers uh, in the largest economies. But even then, these surveys only really cover the first half of the month. We're not going to get the full picture, at least for another month or two. So we, we have to be very patient and, and uh, not get ahead of ourselves in terms of what the central banks and policymakers are saying at this stage. So financial analysts everywhere are turning into epidemiologists um, which is obviously something they're not trained for. But in what's your reading so far of the impact of the virus on global economic activity? Well, as we said, we've had very little data so far. Um, what we know is that um, factories in mainland China uh, were closed for an additional 10 to 15 days, depending on where they are. Uh, the uh, Wuhan region, the, the uh, sort of the ground zero of the outbreak will probably remain closed for the foreseeable future. And that itself is worth about 4.5% of Chinese GDP growth. So what we're trying to do in, in, in coming up with our, our numbers, and we are in the middle of updating our forecast at the moment, is we're trying to judge uh, how much lost output we're going to see from the closures from the time that we have reported. But of course, not all the factories have come back on yet. Our early estimate for Chinese GDP growth for the first quarter is around 4.3%. Now, that's quite a stark fall from the 6% that was reported at the end of last year. But even here, we're trying to um, come up with a number that we think that the Chinese government can actually report 
Um, the distinction being that actual actual activity in China could be even weaker. But uh, there's a there's a tendency for uh, Chinese official numbers to perhaps smooth out some of these trends. Yeah, but I was going to say that 4.3% sounds remarkably high given the scale of disruption that China suffered. Uh, Remember, these are year-on-year numbers. So on a quarter-on-quarter basis, it's a much weaker number uh, that you get. But also don't forget that um, this has happened during the New Year celebration period. So not all of the shutdowns uh, would have been disruptive. Some of them would have been partly due to the holiday season. So in a sense... Uh, we've been both fortunate and unfortunate uh, with the timing of this. We've been fortunate in that a lot of these factories were closed anyway. Uh, and really, we're, we're only talking about the delay to coming back from the holidays uh, for the level of disruption. It's been um, unfortunate in the sense that um, the amount of travel that happens during this period, this point in time of the year, um, will have certainly helped the spread of the virus uh, to other parts of China and beyond, of course. And Apple made an announcement earlier this week about the impact of the virus on their supply chains. And this feels like a rippling out of the issue to much broader impact of manufacturing. Is that something that's that's easy to judge? Well, I mean, they are aware of um, the, the closures, obviously, in their own factories that they're seeing and their supply chain. Um, and so they are... Uh, deliberately being early in in reporting the disruption that's coming, but also the expected um, hit to sales in China. Um, That will also be a factor that that we see. But beyond Apple, we've seen the likes of Nissan, Hyundai, uh, and a number of other large um, uh, multinational uh, manufacturers start to report potential uh, outages and and, uh, downtime for their production lines uh, to come. So let's move on to Europe, which always seems to suffer when there's a disruption in any other part of the world. Um, I mean, is, is, I, I mentioned at the beginning that European data for the fourth quarter was pretty weak. Uh, is, is the first quarter again going to be a disappointing period for European growth? I think it, it will still be a generally a weak period um, because the hope was that industrial production would start to pick up as world trade begins to recover in reaction to the phase one trade deal between the US and China. You know, everybody was waiting for that to finally happen at the end of last year. It's happened, but this new uh, risk of the coronavirus obviously delays that uh, recovery uh, coming through. Um, I'm not sure if it necessarily will be a disappointment because this is now a known risk today, Um, but it doesn't really matter, does it? It's still going to be a very weak start to the year and it'll take time for activity to start to get back to more normal levels um, uh, for Europe, well, for the rest of the world, in fact. And do you think there's any chance that we'll see fiscal stimulus in Europe, particularly in Germany, in response to this weak environment? I don't think it's likely, um, partly because uh, there is a tremendous amount of what we call automatic stabilizers built into fiscal policy across Europe. Uh, what do we mean by this? Well, this is essentially uh, things like uh, unemployment benefits or uh, other fiscal programs that are designed to help uh, households and businesses during a downturn. And because they are automatic in nature, you don't need to announce new measures to help boost growth in that way. Um, typically in Europe, they wait until recessions are actually seen before they start to introduce even bigger 
uh, fiscal measures to help uh, boost growth. But the other uh, issue that we've seen is that um, Europe tends to have a much longer-term time horizon when it when it thinks about fiscal policy. It's not really interested in the next year or two. It tends to focus more on the very long term. And the demographic challenges in Europe mean that um, these countries will have to borrow tremendous amounts of money to pay for their aging populations uh, in the next 15, 20 years. And for that reason, they're trying to minimize debt as much as possible today to allow them to have the room to borrow in the future. So they are prioritizing uh, borrowing further out. Um, and as a result, we, I don't think we'll see much in the way of fiscal stimulus uh, in the near future. And then turning to the monetary picture, we, we talked about the the lack of room that the European Central Bank has to reduce interest rates. In fact, it seems like the trend is moving the other way with the Swedish Central Bank having moved back to zero rates from negative. And there's a growing groundswell of view that negative rates are damaging to the economy. Do you, do you see that gaining momentum as the year progresses? Potentially, yes. And the European Central Bank have recently announced a review of almost every aspect of its monetary policy, which is due to conclude at the start of next year. And one of the things that they're going to be looking at are the negative consequences from their policy, including the negative interest rates, um, but also quantitative easing, for example. Um, now, we all know that an economy that has negative interest rates starts to see distortions all over the place. Um, suddenly, the cost of money, the cost of owing money, turns to either zero or negative, And that changes the incentives for people to repay debt, for example. Um, and the uh, the Riksbank, the Swedish central bank, has, has decided actually they've had enough of this now and they need to take it back up to zero. But they're not yet ready to start really raising the, the normal level of interest rates. They are going to keep those as low as they can for uh, a protracted period of time. But they just feel that negative interest rates have become a little bit too harmful for the economy. The other extraordinary development in European bond markets is that if I look at yields on some of the peripheral markets today, both Greek and Italian 10-year bond yields are below 1%. How do you explain that? Well, um, you start by looking at the German yields, uh, which is around uh, minus 60 basis points or so. Uh, and if that is your alternative, then suddenly uh, 1% on Italy doesn't quite look so bad. Um, you know, I think essentially investors in these bonds are uh, underpricing the risk involved in um, investing in these peripheral markets. But they do so with the knowledge that the European Central Bank is currently buying up more bonds. And they must have a view that that's going to carry on for quite some time, which, by the way, we share. We share that view. Um, so for that reason, you will continue to see, I think, uh, strong demand for these bonds. So there's a sort of moral hazard at work here that uh, however much debt Italy issues, however shaky the recovery is in Greece, bond yields will continue to hold their levels or possibly fall, fall even further because of the ECB's influence. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you have to remember that the Greek market is the Greek bond market is, is largely now owned by official institutions. Anyway, there's not really much of a free float for 
uh, for uh, private investors. The Italian debt market, on the other hand, it still is very much a, a large liquid market uh, owned by private and uh, public uh, institutions. Uh, but um, that, and that's why those yields are higher in Italy than they are in Greece for the moment. But nobody, I think, would, would say that uh, Greece is a safer investment than Italy. Let's turn to the UK. So we had the election in mid-December. Uh, Boris Johnson won a decisive majority. Uh, since then, there have been some signs of a pickup in business confidence as, as businesses reacted to the greater political certainty. We also had the, the abrupt resignation of the Chancellor of the Exchequer a week or so ago. Um, a lot of talk about potential for fiscal stimulus in, in the UK. What, what's your outlook? So the first thing to point out is that we're, we're, we're now in a world where we have far greater certainty around uh, what will happen with Brexit uh, going forward. The withdrawal agreement passed. The UK has technically now left the European Union and um, negotiations are underway for a future trade uh, agreement. The nature of those uh, discussions are still very uncertain, of course, but uh, we expect both sides to at least try to find some common ground so that we have got uh, continued trade uh, without tariffs in the majority of sectors uh, for the UK. And that's uh, a very different world than we were only a few months ago, where we were uh, very worried about a cliff-edge Brexit, where uh, we would have very large tariffs and blockades uh, with regards to trade to in, in both directions. So with that risk reduced, you're starting to see optimism return to uh, for businesses. And with that, you would expect to begin to see uh, a recovery in business investment, in, so in hiring as well, uh, and in activity more generally. Now, it's still early days. So far, we've only seen this coming through in business surveys, which, uh, you know, don't really translate to actual data, but um, will start to feed through uh, later uh, later in the year. Um, but there are still uh, things that we're, we're, we're thinking about. So, for example, um, the UK has just announced a very tough new points-based uh, regime with regards to its migration policy, similar to the Australian system uh, that uh, uh, is in place. Um, according to the Home Office, around 70% of um, recent migrants from the EU wouldn't satisfy these um, uh, new rules. And therefore, you expect on the back of this system to start seeing a reduction in net migration into the country. Um, given that uh, the government is going for quite a, a significant increase in fiscal spending over the next few years, the real question is, well, where are the people going to come from to be able to carry out the infrastructure investment and so on? And, and this is at a time when unemployment in the UK is at multi-year lows. Absolutely. 3.8%, lowest since the 1970s. Now, the government says that there are around 8 million inactive people that are going to come in and, and fill those positions. Uh, but the reality is a lot of these... Uh, inactive people are students that are still studying. Uh, yes, they will eventually join the workforce, but they are studying. Um, a lot of people with disabilities that choose not to work. Um, a lot of people that are retired uh, and, again, are not interested in working anymore. So th there's, there's going to be uh, a very real squeeze 
on businesses when it comes to uh, filling job vacancies. And, and as a result, you'll probably see higher wage inflation coming through and higher inflation uh, as well to the economy. And what about the potential for much stronger infrastructure spending in the UK? Well, we should expect to see more of it. Um, certainly that's in the government's plans and they've, they've uh, announced that the high-speed rail link um, uh, part two will, will, will continue uh, as previously um, planned. Um, but again, the limitations will be the availability of, of workers. And I think that uh, it will be more severe than the government's currently uh, expecting. Let's finish up talking about the emerging economies. There was a, quite a lot of optimism as we came into 2020 that the year could be a good one for emerging markets with the prospect of a slightly weaker dollar, of a recovery in global growth, uh, and with a reasonably strong Chinese economy, which is important to many Asian economies. All these three factors have reversed, largely as a consequence of, of the coronavirus. But you still think that the the room for emerging market central banks to cut rates will offset those negatives? The central banks will certainly help um, fill the uh, sort of the demand gap that we're currently uh, seeing. Um, but the the concern, I think, for uh, investors is we just don't know how long the coronavirus outbreak is, is going to last. And the longer it lasts, the more difficult it becomes for supply chains. Now, we can all sit down and look at uh, the proportion of exports and imports that go through China and so on. And we can uh, easily highlight that China is now a far larger economy today than it used to be. And, and therefore, we have to uh, be aware that the impact is going to be larger than, for example, when the SARS uh, outbreak happened back in 2003. But the, the, the truth is that if a company is reliant on a particular part from China uh, in order to finish the manufacturing of another good. If it can't source an alternative part, then it simply can't carry on. It doesn't matter if the value of that part is 1% of the final price or 20% of the final price. If it can't substitute that part, then that good will not be finished. Um, and we saw the same thing happen during uh, the Japanese earthquake. Um, where we suddenly saw that a number of factories that were exporting uh, crucial parts like microprocessors and LED screens suddenly were knocked out and knocked out permanently. Of course, it wasn't. A, it was quite a dramatic earthquake, if you remember. Um, in the end, what we saw was yes, some companies were able to substitute away from those Japanese manufacturers, but it did lead to a sharp rise in the price of those uh, goods and parts. Um, so this will take quite a bit of time before we see the full impact play out. And for that reason, uh, emerging markets may struggle for a short period. We're pretty much out of time. Uh, Azad, thank you very much. I guess the, the, the main takeaway I draw from what you've been talking about is that even with the enormous uncertainty caused by the uh, coronavirus outbreak, liquidity still remains a very powerful support for many risk markets. You highlighted commodities as being an exception to that. Uh, so un until we get some clarity on the, the scale or the speed of the outbreak, uh, central banks will continue to play the supporting role they have done in 2019 as we move through 2020. Azad, thanks again, and we look forward to talking to you again on future podcasts. Thank you. 
The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance and may not be repeated. Schroeder's Investment Management Limited is an authorized financial services provider. FSP number 48998, registration number 01893220, incorporated in England and Wales. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation. Any funds, services or products mentioned might not be appropriate for all listeners. Please speak to a financial advisor if you are unsure as to the suitability of any investment.